I'm super excited about the book of James as my prayer is that God will use it in your life to mature you. And so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles there. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Imagine that, man, coming to a place where you're perfect, you're complete, you are lacking nothing. Now, of course, we know when he talks about perfect, and we read it a few times in the Bible, he's not talking about sinless. We're all going to sin uh, uh, until we've got the new bodies and we're in glory. But he's talking about maturity. He's talking about maturity. And, and in one sense, the goal here of this text and even of the entire book of James is to grow up. Sometimes Christians just grow old. I've been walking for 30 years. With the Lord, yeah, but you still got that, you know, short fuse, and you're still so carnal in your relationships with people, and you know, you're this, ah, I don't know about that, it's like, wait a minute, it's time not just to grow old, but to grow up, grow up, be mature, be more like Christ, and that's what the Lord wants, you know, yeah, when we die, we're going to be perfect, and some people probably have that mentality, like, well, when I die, I'm going to be perfect, and so that's what I'm looking forward to. But don't you realize that the more you're like Christ now, the more he does the finishing work now, the more you're like Jesus now, the more you will, like Randy was saying, enjoy your relationship, the more you will be used by God to pull people out of the flames, the more effective you'll be with your family in the ministry. And so this is our our goal. Imagine if it was my responsibility to to train you to run a 26-mile marathon. Imagine that. How many of you guys run? I'm just curious. Any of you guys run here? we got a couple of runners. Three, four runners. 26 miles. If you tried it, some of you here, you would die, right? <laughs> You'd faint. You wouldn't finish. Well, that's unfortunately what's going to happen to a lot of Christians. They're going to they're gonna run, but they're not going to finish, unfortunately. I'm not talking about losing their salvation. I'm talking about like being able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the work, I kept the faith. I, I stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Everything that I wanted you to do, you did. Why? Because unfortunately, what we see a lot of times in the race is people split, they quit, they go sideways, they don't have the endurance that's necessary to finish the 26-mile marathon. And so the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so when we're thinking about running a marathon, you guys know there's training involved, there's discipline, uh, there's pain. There is pain. I mean, you can ask my wife, and I don't do 26 miles, you know, but I hate it. I hate it. I hate running. But I do it because I know I need it. And that's the way it is with trials. You know, any of you guys going through trials? Any of you guys going through hard times? Any of you guys going through struggles? 
understand that today's text is so important because if you have the proper perspective in those difficulties that you're facing in life, if you uh, count it all joy, and we'll see exactly what that means, if you count it all joy, if you do, then what God is going to do is going to give you endurance or patience so that you can finish the race that he has for you. But if you sit there and you cry and you complain and you quit and you're like, you know, I'm done, you know, like Roberto Duran, no mas. I mean, dude, you could have just fought, you could have beat him up. I know you, man, but sometimes people do that. And, and, and what ends up happening is they miss out on so much. And so let's look at this book, verse 1, written by James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so James, um, I'm 99.99% sure it is the half-brother of Jesus, which is fascinating to me. Imagine what it must have been like growing up with Jesus, you know? Now, I'm not 100% sure. There are some Bible teachers who think, well, maybe it was one of the other James. There are four James mentioned in the Bible, but I'm 99.99% sure, and I have to tell you guys that there is some possibility of someone else because who knows, maybe one day we'll be there in heaven and we'll be playing ping pong or something and we'll be talking, <laughs> and uh, you're going to be like, man, it was a different James. And, and I, was, I will just say, well, yeah, I did leave room for that just to let you know. <laughs> But, um, you know, the evidence on the outside, all the church fathers that attributed to James and the evidence on the inside seem to indicate it, that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus had siblings. Uh, we know that um, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says that they didn't believe in him. Initially, they didn't believe in him. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that Jesus appeared to James and therefore, you know, he became a believer. I'm of the opinion, and I'm just pure speculation here, but I'm of the opinion that more than likely Jesus appeared to his whole family, you know, because Jude also got saved, another one of his brothers, and uh, I don't know, like, I just think, well, if I got, you know, resurrected from the dead, I'd want to talk to my family, you know, so more than likely, that's what happened, and so when the Lord appeared to James, um, it's, it's so cool what God did. You're going to see in the book of James, uh, 108 verses, and in 108 verses, 54 of those verses are imperatives, they're commands. This, whoever writes this, James who writes this, he writes a lot of commands. What that means is he's very authoritative, very authoritative. He didn't have to tell them who he was. They knew who he was just by his first name, James, right? And so when you read the Bible, you realize, well, this has to be the James uh, the Lord's half-brother. You know, when you see in Galatians, for example, chapter 2, it says that James was an apostle. It says that James, the brother of the Lord, was a pillar of the church. When you read Acts chapter 15, when you have the Jerusalem council, and they had their old, the whole debate, it eventually came down, down to what James said. Because more than likely, he was the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. He definitely had a lot of authority and so when you look not only at that, but in Acts chapter 15, when you look at the writing uh, uh, the, the, of what James said, it matches with what we read in this little letter. And so 99.99% sure it is James, the half-brother 
of Jesus. And so that's the one who wrote this. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but to me, I'm like, wow, this is the one who hung out with the Lord. And you're going to see some similarities in this letter in comparison to the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus spoke, right? Um, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that that was Jesus' circuit teaching. So wherever he would go, this is what he would teach. And so I'll bet you almost anything, him and James, they had conversations. And so uh, a really fascinating perspective, James here, the brother of Jesus. So if I were writing the book, and if I were the half-brother of Jesus, that's kind of how I would open it up. Manny, you know who I am? The brother of Jesus. But that's not what he does, huh? Notice what he says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's different Greek words for servant in the New Testament. You have, for example, diakonos, which is like a deacon. They do little jobs, running errands here and there. Um, you have the word uh, huperides, which is an under rower, which has their place. But this word right here, is the word doulos, and what it refers to is an individual who has surrendered their rights. I have no rights other than what God commands me to think and say and do. You know, when you read the background to it, Exodus chapter 21, you'll find that the bondservant was in reference to a Jewish man who had paid his debt, they did their years, and now they, if they wanted to, they could go free. You know, and that's us, you guys. You, you don't have to come to church, but you came. You don't have to read your Bible, but, but hopefully you do. You don't have to pray. You don't have to obey. If you want us to keep looking at that smut, I mean, you can if you want to waste your life doing your own stuff, your own dream, you can. You are free. Have you discovered that yet? I know I've discovered that. I mean, I could watch TV 17 hours. But I'm free. But what a bondservant is, is the one who says, yeah, I can go free, but I see the way that my master is my master. The way that the Lord loves me the way that he takes care of me, the plans that he has for my life, I see the way he was nailed to a cross for me. I see his love. And you read Exodus 21, and it's so beautiful, because he just says, I, I, and I love him. He plainly says, and I love him. And so he goes in the city gates, and they make it public, and they pierce his ear, and he becomes a bondservant forever. That's what James is. He's a bondservant of God. That's why this letter is so awesome. Of course, Paul was as well, these guys, man. You know, um, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. And so I hope you guys are as well. Don't think it's just for the elite. Don't think it's just for the pastors or the apostles or the overseers. It's for all the Christians. We're all supposed to be bondservants, people who have laid down their rights to live for Jesus. And he tells me, you know, what to think, and he tells me what to say and who to say it to and how to say it and when to say it. He tells me everything. 
I trip out. And when you read the Gospel of John, I trip out on that book and how throughout the whole book, it just keeps saying over and over again, Jesus didn't say anything unless the Father told him to say it. And Jesus didn't go anywhere unless the Father told him to go there. And Jesus didn't do anything unless the Father told him to do it. And it's just saturated throughout the Gospel of John. And that should be our heart. You know, it's interesting how he identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that definitely is an indication that Jesus is God because you can't serve two masters. And so James, it's kind of cool coming to us, the brother of Jesus. Hey, um, in heaven, I can't wait to have some of those discussions with some of these guys. What was it like, you know, going up with Jesus? You know, like he never sinned. He never, you know, you guys never got... Uh, well, maybe James and these other guys did, but, you know, Jesus, this amazing, you know, brother, but he, they didn't believe in him, and that probably tells us that Jesus didn't do any miracles while he was growing up, not until he started his public ministry, right? And so um, James identifies himself, and you're going to see this guy's amazing. It says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and the 12 tribes are in reference to Israel, of course. We know that they're uh, consisting of the 12 tribes. Some say that some are missing, but the Bible doesn't say they are. It's identified even in the book of Revelation. And so one of the things that you'll see when you read the letter is it has a very Jewish flavor to it. Some uh, believe that James uh, was an apostle and he was esteemed prior to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. A lot of people believe that James, if you might remember, he was known as Camel Knees. He would pray a lot even before he became a follower of Jesus. And so the rabbis and those, they thought highly of him. And so when he got saved, they tell us, church history tells us, he never left Jerusalem. He never left Jerusalem. That's why you see him there. And the apostles probably said, you know what? He's the good guy to be a pastor here in this church. He had a very Jewish burden, very Jewish heart. You're going to see it in this, in, this, in this letter. And he writes it to the 12 tribes that are, that are scattered. And some say that Peter wrote to the tribes scattered to the, to the uh, east, and then James wrote to the west. We don't know for sure. But, but, but here we see he has that heart. You know, later on, when I'll just tell you a quick, the quick story of, of James. It says that, you know, like I said earlier, the, the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, they even thought highly of him prior to him becoming a Christian. And one day James was talking, and, uh, and he had become a Christian. And so, you know, it's crazy. Eventually, you see time uh, fast forward, and these same Jewish leaders, they ended up stoning him to death. And then the final blow was, they said, a club, boom. And the bondservant had laid down his life for the Lord. You know, this is who, who writes the book. To me, it, it carries weight. To me, I'm going to open up my heart. Because I, you know, you might think, well, no, I don't think you guys think. You guys know I have a lot of growing to do, huh? I mean, I, 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 I want to be a mature Christian. So I'm opening up my heart. I see this letter, 
And even the greeting, even in the greeting, he says there in verse 1, uh, greetings, and that's an interesting word in the Greek language. Uh, it's actually the word joy. Joy. And, and, you know, most of the time it's grace and peace. Most of the time you have these other, you know, greetings. But, but James, one of the cool things about James is he doesn't pull any punches. Okay, so he's writing to 12 tribes that are scattered. So, I mean, we're not talking like, hey, I like the weather in California, let's move over there. Or, hey, I like the political setting in Texas or Florida, I can buy a house over there, let's move over there. No, they were scattered. They got kicked out, they got driven out. I mean, think about it, leaving, you know, your family, leaving your home. And James, when he writes to them, though, he doesn't, like, say, oh, I feel sorry for you, mijo. He doesn't do that. He just tells them, hey, joy. Joy, very right off the bat, and then he gets into it right off the bat. Sometimes I think we baby people too much. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have to have compassion. We have to be tender and gentle. But, but you know, you say it in the right way, when the right setting, hey, I, I know you're going through difficult times. I understand you are. I, I know. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like. You know, but I, I just want you, I want to encourage you to find joy in this journey. Because if you look to Jesus, you will. That's what he says. Verse 2, he says, my, my brethren, speaking to Christians, count it all joy. Not some joy, all joy. Same Greek word when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now here we see the, the, the what, to count it all joy, we, we see the when, when you fall into various trials. We see the fruit of joy, kind of like four words that might help you put handles on today's study. The, the fruit is joy, the fall is trials, how faith produces, and then the finish will be perfect and complete. And so James tells us to count it all joy. Now, an interesting thing, the Greek word translated count it is not like one, two, three. It's not like reckon. That's what we would think. Think outside the box. Think count Dracula. The Count of Monte Cristo. You know what that means, right? When you look to this Greek word in the Bible, most of the time it's talking about a leader. It's talking about a governor. And so when he says, count it all joy, he's actually saying, like, let this, this is be the, the controlling thought. Let it govern your heart. Let it lead your life. As you're going through the difficulties that you're going through, I want this to be, you know, the, the governor, your guide, to count it all joy. You know, when you look at this, God wants us to have that attitude. Now, before you think, you know, we're crazy, what do you mean, counting all joy? You don't know the pain that I go through? Listen, it's not a superficial phrase. It's not like I put on a happy face and smile. Uh, no, it's something that goes on on the inside, not just the outside. You know, it, it, as you're going through the pain, I, I will say this, it's okay to cry. God keeps track of every single tear you cry. But here's the thing. Don't crumble. Don't split. Don't quit. 
And you're there in the middle of all that pain. And I know you're going through pain. We will go through pain. I know we will. When you're there in the middle of it all, he just says, count on all joy. When you're there in the middle of it all, don't quit, don't split, keep the faith, and it'll strengthen you. You know, there's some individuals, just a couple of individuals I know, they have cancer. They have cancer. But you would never know it when you talk to them. I mean, and we're not talking about like just enduring it. We're talking about embracing it. We're talking about the joy that they have, even in a situation like that. That's what James is saying right here. I remember one time going to visit a guy in the hospital room, and he was in dangerous situation. He could have died. He had this septic infection, and it was just crazy. Things were complicated, and, you know, I walk into the room, and you know what he does? As I walk in the room, now you guys know what to do when we go visit you in the hospital, if the Lord tarries, and what I have to do. You know what he does? He just put out hand, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Can you do that? That's what James is saying to do, to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You know, what does this look like? Uh, the, the word joy, there's different Greek words in the New Testament for joy. One is the joy of just eating and drinking, and I love that, eating and drinking. I mean, it's just so cool. You know, it is a joy, especially, you know, my family. Another Greek word is more of an outward expression, like rejoicing, singing, jumping up and down, you know, the public exaltation. Um, but the Greek word used here is kara, and it describes an inner a pleasure, a, a satisfaction within, a, a well-being of the soul. That in spite of the circumstances on the outside that have now pierced and penetrated and caused so much pain, there's joy because the trial has been met with a proper perspective, and the spirit is moving because joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just a, a phase, um, but it's actually like a phrase of the Spirit. It is well. It is well. You know, many of you probably know that, that hymn, Horatio Spafford. You know, in the days of D.L. Moody, he was a good friend of his. He was a man who was wealthy, but his child, who was only four years old, died. Now, you guys, I don't know if you know any four-year-olds. Four-year-olds, they say laugh uh, more than anyone else. What does that mean? Four-year-olds bring you so much joy. But what if your four-year-old dies? And then there was the great Chicago fire, and he was a wealthy man. He lost a lot of money. Lost a lot of money. But while he lost all that money, he was out there, a Christian man. He was helping other people. You know, this is a guy who, going through trials, counting all joy. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to lose a child. But that wasn't the end. One day when D.L. Moody wanted him and his family to meet him in Europe, he said, yes, we're going to go on vacation. Yay. You know, but unfortunately, his work held him back, and so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead. You probably heard the story. 
And they got hit by another ship in the middle of the Atlantic. His wife was found floating on wood, debris. She was able to send a message back to her husband. Saved alone. His four daughters died. So he goes, immediately gets into the ship, and he heads towards his wife who's in Europe, and a captain brought him out right about the spot where the ship had been struck, where his daughters died. He said, this is where it happened. And he goes in to his room, and you know what he did? He wrote that song. It is well. It is well with my soul. And the first two lines, they say something like this, if peace like a river, you know, flows through my soul, or if, or if waves like billows, they roll. It is well. It is well my soul. See, I mean, I'm sure he cried. I'm sure he cried. I'm sure there was a pain within him that we will never begin to understand unless you are in that exact situation. But he didn't quit. He didn't split. He didn't lose faith. He didn't cry and then crumble. It reminds me of what Job did. If you would go to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. And you guys, I mean, he's like the poster child for us in this situation. But all I'm trying to give you an example of is like, what does it look like to count it all joy when you fall into various trials? Are you like, yay, and it's like that? No, no. You know, it's like, I'll write a song. I'll write a praise song. Uh, it's, it's like praise the Lord by faith. It's like what Job does. And you guys remember the story how Job was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. This guy was an awesome Christian, an awesome follower of God. And then one day Satan is up reporting to God. And God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. And Satan says, yeah, the only reason that he is so committed to you is because you have made his life so easy. He's got money, he's got this family, he's hell, everything is hunky-dory for this guy, right? That's what Satan said. If you take it away, he'll curse you to your face. And so the Lord said, okay, go ahead. Just spare his, don't touch his body. And so what does Satan do? Immediately he gets out of the presence of God, he goes down, and he, you know, the, the, the raiders come, they take away all his flock, all his finances, it, it all dissipates, and then all of his children, all of his children die. Now, one of the things that the book of Job points out is that his children were precious to him. You know, the Bible talk, it doesn't say much about Job prior to this incident, but it does say that Job would wake up every single morning and he would pray for his children. He would pray for them. He sort of less, maybe they did something wrong, maybe they sinned, maybe they cursed God in their hearts, and he would pray for them. They were the heaviest on his heart. God would forgive them. And so when this happens, all his kids, all his finances, 
what does Job do? How does Job count it all joy? Well, this is what we read in Job chapter 1, in verse 20. It says, And then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. You know, if that wasn't enough, not just the finances, not just the family, but eventually he gets hit with uh, other things physically, boils from head to toe. I mean, pain that we can't even begin to imagine because Satan comes again for round two. And then to make matters worse, I mean, not only does he lose his, his physical health, in one sense he loses his friends. His friends. These are my friends. Not anymore. They come and they just turn against him. You're in sin. His, his wife, his, his wife, I mean, she's supposed to be his best friend, right? And, and again, you got to give grace to Job's wife. Imagine how difficult it must have been for mom to lose all her, her kids and everything's going down and she sees her husband suffering like this. But what does she say to Job? He says, you know, you still hold to your integrity. Curse God and die. So all I'm saying is that this is what Job is going through. I don't know if it gets any worse than, than losing your family and your finances and your friends and your physical health and you feel all alone. But then Job said in chapter 2, verse 9, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die is what his wife said. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know, when I, when I think of counting it all joy, again, I'm not thinking about like, oh, yay, you know, some superficial smile. I am talking about um, worshiping God. I'm talking about not only singing a song to God, but if you have the capacity, maybe even writing a song to God. I'm talking about getting on your face and praying. And even when the devil says, you know, why do you serve him? Why do you serve him? Just curse God and go the other way. And then you say, no, no, I will count it all joy because I know God has a plan. And, and see, this is my concern because I see the church in many ways, so casual, so superficial, so flippant in their love for God, so not willing really to serve or sacrifice or pray or really seek the Lord. I mean, how many people in the church really have God first in their life? And you've gone through so much You've gone through so much, and it was intended to make you close to God. But the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, God is sovereign, and God is gracious, and God is not going to give up on us. 
But, but make no mistake about it, it's not automatic. You don't automatically grow when you go through difficulties. You have a choice. If we count on our joy, then there's hope. That, that's what we see here. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How can you possibly do this? How can you worship? How can you sing a song? How can you write a song? How knowing, he says in verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces patience. This is how we can do this. It's, it's by faith. The faith that produces endurance knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces endurance. You know, I remember when I used to wrestle in high school, and a lot of you guys, you know what I'm talking about, how um, the sports and how difficult it was sometimes. I still remember, though, those days, you know, when I'd be running in place, and then the coach would say, you know, he would, he would blow that evil whistle, Boom, you blow the whistle and we have to go down on the ground, chest, bounce back up, keep running. They're called sprawls. We had to do 100, 100 sprawls. And after that, you know, we had to do the, the sprints. We had to do the windmills. We had to do the cherry pickers. You know, we had to run like crazy. And, then, you know, part of you is like, man, what is wrong with this guy? You know, why is he making us go through such painful things? Until the, the day comes and you're on the mat and you are wrestling. You're wrestling with the enemy. And there's only one way that you're going to be able to stand at the end with your arm lifted. And that is if you have endurance. You know, some guys, I'll, I'll be honest, and you, know, you guys probably know, I mean, playing football's good, baseball's good, but some of these sports, they're not like wrestling. And a lot of these athletes, they came and they quit. They quit. A lot of Christians quit, unfortunately, they quit. I'm not going to, you know, stay in this place. And then some of those, and you know, they would kind of like do it half-heartedly, whatever coach said, and so on the mat they would lose. All I'm saying is that this is what God is preparing us for. So that it says right here, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience, patience. Now, other translations say endurance or perseverance. And you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You guys know what endurance is? Endurance is? So you guys, some of you here, you can probably run like, like 10 yards, right? And other people can run like a mile, right? Maybe a mile, two miles, three miles. So it all depends a lot of it on your endurance, how strong is your heart, you know, things like that. I mean, in my, in my neighborhood, we have hills. They're crazy. But, but if you run those hills, it's gonna, you're going to get even stronger, right? And so when you, with these things, what they do is they produce this, this, this patience, this endurance. But then I was looking at it, I'm like, Lord, why does the New King James use the word patience? And the NIV and the NLT and all the other ones use the word endurance or perseverance. I'm all, did the New King James get it wrong? Patience, patience. And then the Lord reminded me that a lot of times that, that endurance, that perseverance, 
It's not there because people don't have the capacity to wait and to be patient with God. Lord, it's starting to hurt. God said, keep going. No, Lord, I can't do it. Yes, you can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't feel like it. You pull yourself up out of bed. You get on your knees. You pray. You show up for church. You show up for ministry. You develop endurance. You develop patience. You don't rush ahead. You wait on the Lord. You trust him. You trust him. And then he says, but let patience, now you have the capacity to have that endurance, have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Ephesians 2, it says that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship in the Greek language there is the word poema. You are his poem. You are his masterpiece. He is making you into the image of his son. He's making you strong. He is giving you spiritual stamina. He is making you like Jesus. That's why you can't split, you can't quit, you can't give up. You don't just face the trials, you embrace the trials. You count in all joy, praise the Lord, I'm going to worship. You're going to trust because you know what he's working in you. Let it have its perfect work. You know, I remember that story, I think I've shared it with you before about the man who was outside the building and he's chipping away and he's an artist, he's a sculptor and, uh, and he's, always, he's got his hammer and he's got his chisel and a little boy comes up to him and he says, hey mister, what are you doing? And the artist, the man, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm sculpting a lion. And the little boy says, well how do you know um, how to sculpt a lion? How do you know what to do? How do you know what to get rid of? And the man says, everything that's not a lion. And that's what, you know, that's what God is doing in us. Let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect. And there's that word, maturity. Listen, you know, you don't just go through it, you grow through it. Like Nadine has reminded us and Carlos, and it will always be a lesson for us because you don't want to waste these trials. I want to be closer to him. You know, there's Job and his wife, and they're, you know, they're going at it, right? And, and you know, Job is going through a trial. Sometimes the trials are, are marriage trials. And so, you know, Job, if he wanted to, he could be like, man, this woman. And like we're talking about right here, as we're going through these trials, God wants to change me. Are you open to that? I mean, do you want to grow up? Do you want to be mature? Do you want to be a New Testament Christian? 
Are you content being a California Christian? Do you want to try? Do you want a trial? You know, talking to Greg, this guy that almost died, you know, I mean, think about what he went through. Think about what his wife went through. He was telling me that when he, you know, was there and the doctor told his wife, hey, you got to get things in order because he's not going to make it, that his sons, you know, started stepping up and they started doing things around the house that their dad, he wasn't going to be there anymore. I mean, it was just like the worst thing. But he said, as I, after going through all that pain and now coming out of it, I wouldn't change anything because I see the fruit that it produces. Do you see how the difficulties, the challenges, the troubles, the trials, do you see how they are opportunities to grow? So that we can be, it says right here, complete, lacking nothing. And so I say that to you because I know some of you here, you're in trials right now, you know, and my prayer is that your attitude towards it would be, um, I trust you, God, you know. But I also say it to you because I love you, and I know that life has a way, you guys. I don't know what's around the corner, man. Something can happen to us tomorrow, and, and we're ready. We're ready for this. You know, being a Christian is not easy. But not being a Christian, I tell you what, that's more difficult. So for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, uh, I pray that you would know he, he loves you he, and you trust him. And, you know, let's get excited, you know. Um, I don't know if Randy knew, you know, what he was saying when he was telling us, hey, enjoy your Christian life. Um, by, by saying, you know, prefacing it for this study, enjoy your trials. <laughs> Count it all joy. Smile in your heart. Something good about joy, huh? Yeah. And then, if you're not a Christian today, I pray you would know that Jesus loves you and he died for you on a cross. You don't have tomorrow guaranteed. You don't. And so my prayer, you know, I remember, I, I talked earlier about the Chicago fire, right? And so uh, D.L. Moody was doing crusades, uh, during that time, and and he told everybody that was at the crusade that night, he said, and so what I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to think about it. Think about whether or not you want to become a, a Christian, and then tomorrow you can let us know what your decision is. And that was the night the fire happened. And many of those people in that auditorium died. So I can't do that. I can't say, hey, think about it and come back tomorrow. I can just encourage you guys today that if you have drifted away from God, that you would come back today. And if you've never made that commitment, that you would today choose to follow Jesus. And I just want to give you that opportunity. And I remember when I got saved, it was so simple. I just said yes to Jesus. And he came into my life. He'll do that for you and he'll set you free. He'll forgive you of all your sins and he'll bless you. But you have to make that decision.